the History Channel original podcast. History This Week, April 25th, 1859. I'm Sally Helm. Dawn on the shores of Lake Manzala. It's a shallow lake in the Nile Delta, maybe more of a lagoon. There are a couple of villages clustered around it, some nearby fishing shacks. And this morning, there's an extra camp on the thin strip of land between this lake and the vast Mediterranean Sea. The men there have awoken early and are packing their gear onto camels, shovels, and pickaxes. Because they're here to carve a new water route in this corner of the desert, one that today helps move an estimated 12% of all global trade, the Suez Canal. The men and their camels travel to a specific spot nearby. It's marked out by stakes in the ground. Pretty soon, there's a crowd gathered here, about 150 people. And one of them, a mustachioed, retired French diplomat, steps forward. His name is Ferdinand de Lesseps. Theatrically, he unfurls an Egyptian flag and starts giving a grand speech about trade and civilization and progress. He raises his pickaxe and strikes a ceremonial blow. Then Delesseps turns to the assembled workers, who are mostly Egyptian. They're the ones who are actually going to do the brutal work of building this canal. He tells them, remember that you are not simply digging up soil. Your work will bring prosperity to your families and to your countries. There's a cheer. The workers raise their tools, and digging begins on the Suez Canal. The audacious goal is to cut through the desert to connect the Mediterranean Sea with the Red Sea, opening trade routes between the East and West, changing global trade and geopolitics forever. Today, the conflicts and unintended consequences around building the Suez Canal. Why did the tremendous efforts of this mustachioed Frenchman end up enriching the British Empire? And how, decades later, did the canal play an unexpected role in the birth of modern Egypt? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Decades before Ferdinand de Lesseps drives that pickaxe into the ground, he is a budding French diplomat. His first posting is in Alexandria, Egypt, where he's serving as vice consul. Part of his job will be to meet important people. But for the moment, he's not meeting anyone. The consulate has stuck him in quarantine. Because he arrived from Tunis, where there was, I think, a cholera outbreak. That's Ebrahim al-Hudaybi. 
He's getting his PhD at Columbia University, studying how the Suez Canal has influenced the rise of modern Egypt. But when we called him, he was in his hometown of Cairo, Egypt's capital. Cairo is a city that you can only understand from within. It's organized chaos in a sense. It has its own logic. It's beautiful in so many ways. But Hudaybi told us, putting his hometown pride aside, that the most important Egyptian city in the 1830s was not Cairo, but Alexandria. And that is where Delesips languishes in quarantine, deeply bored. He has none of the 1830s entertainments he's accustomed to. He can't go smoke his pipe while watching a regatta. But the consulate takes pity on him. The consul sends him a pile of books, basically. Delesseps picks up a memoir written by a French engineer. It talks about Napoleon's invasion of Egypt in 1798. The general surveyed his conquest and was struck by a grand idea. What if we could link the Mediterranean to the Red Sea by building a canal right through Egypt's northern desert? At that time, to get goods from Europe to Asia and back by sea, traders have to sail for three months all the way around the Horn of Africa. Great Britain and France are competing over trade with India in particular, and Britain is winning. So Napoleon thinks, if we build this route, it would make it easier for France to get to India, and we could get a bigger piece of that lucrative trade. Napoleon wasn't the first person to have this vision. In fact, the pharaohs had imagined it millennia before. But Napoleon thought, I have all this power and modern technology. And he orders his engineers to look into it, find out whether this is possible. Delesseps, in quarantine decades later, reads about the result in that memoir. This engineer helped study the landscape and came back with an assessment. Which concludes that there's a difference in sea level between the Red Sea and the Mediterranean that renders the construction of the canal impossible because it will flood the valley. They thought water would spill down from the higher areas and swamp the lower areas. Also, cargo ships can't travel uphill, so they would have had to build an expensive system of locks to make travel possible. Napoleon scrapped the idea. But Delesseps is smitten by this vision of linking the East and the West. He wonders, would it really be so hard? What if it were possible to build the canal? As it turns out, others are asking the very same question and coming up with an electrifying answer. In the 1830s, a British general conducts another survey of the desert of Suez and concludes that this is an error. Napoleon's engineers were wrong. There is no difference between the sea levels, which triggers all this interest by others in the canal, and they start visiting Egypt, and Deliceps is acquainted with this group of canalists. The Canalists. They're a group of mostly French engineers and visionaries determined to act on this new information. It's the summer of 1834, and Deliceps is joining them at a lavish luncheon. The group has recently pitched the idea of the canal to the ruler or pasha of Egypt. He's a man named Mehmet Ali. Ali has been in power for three decades. Not much happens in Egypt without his approval. The canalists thought that it wouldn't be that hard to convince him. Surely he'd understand the glory and the profits that would be his if he approved their plan. Ali listened to the pitch and said, absolutely not. 
Mehmed Ali was strongly opposed to the idea of the canal for numerous reasons. For one, the route for this canal would be in a region less tightly controlled by Ali. And he feels that an overland route through Alexandria and Cairo would better guarantee profits for Egypt. Plus, he's not wild about the fact that these canalists are French. He feared provoking the British by accepting a project that is proposed by the French. He was very keen on maintaining this kind of balance between the powers. Britain, remember, dominates trade between Europe and India. It will have nothing to gain, or so it believes, from a canal run by the French. Britain is proposing instead to improve the existing rail lines in Egypt. So it seemed that between these competing projects of the railway and the canal, that the railway was winning. Much to the dismay of the canalists. At their fancy luncheon, they console themselves by hitting the champagne hard. Deleseps is disappointed too, but he will soon have a role to play in the drama of the canal. He was not its poster child, but he took interest in the canal. He was there interacting with them, discussing with them, maybe even lobbying on their behalf. He still has a day job, of course, working as a French diplomat. He's meeting a lot of people. And one of them is Pasha Ali's youngest son, Prince Mohammed Saeed. His father was very keen on his youngest son's physical health. So he forced his son Saeed to go, like, climb mountains and, like, do hard labor a few days a week and forbade him from eating. But Saeed, at that time, used to escape and go to the house of Ferdinand Deliceps, the only place that he was allowed to go to, and Deliceps offered him macaroni. Macaroni, like pasta, just what the 11-year-old prince desires. So this is how the relationship started, at least according to Deliceps. Deleseps takes an interest in the young prince. He keeps slipping him pasta and pastries. He also teaches him to ride horseback. And when Deleseps eventually moves back to Europe, the two stay in touch. And the Frenchman, though now far from Egypt, still nurtures a hope that one day a canal will part the desert. One thing is certain, though. It'll never happen under Ali Pasha. But no one stays in power forever. In 1848, Ali dies. His nephew, Abbas I, takes over. And he's not exactly beloved. Abbas had terrible relations with everyone. He was known to have a temper and whatnot. He's on bad terms with many of his relatives. And he too is opposed to the canal. Not just out of crankiness, but because he's so cranky and people at home don't like him, Abbas I wants to maintain the support of the powerful British government. So, like his uncle before him, he refuses to let the French canalists build. Once again, the dream is dead. Until the summer of 1854. What happened? Abbas was killed. He was actually killed allegedly by two of his slaves who were fed up with the way he treated them and they just killed him one evening. So when Abbas was killed, he was succeeded by his uncle, Saeed. Mohammed Saeed. None other than the boy who once loved eating pasta with Ferdinand de Lesseps. When Saeed takes power in 1854, de Lesseps is officially retired. His time as a diplomat is over. 
But could it be, he wonders, that his time as a builder has just begun? Delesseps gets a meeting with Said, who is now 32 years old. And Delesseps basically begins to pitch him on this idea. That's Aaron Jakes, a professor at the New School in New York City. He's working on a big book about the canal's history. And he told us this is a breakthrough moment. The canal project has already been turned down twice by two different rulers. But when Mohammed Saeed hears about it from Delesseps, he's drawn to the audacity and grandeur of the project and what that could mean for Egypt. There's a case to be made that doing something so dramatic and transformative would play a role in raising Egypt's stature on a world stage and demonstrating that Egypt was an increasingly modern country worthy of being a kind of peer to the great powers of Europe. So Said says yes. Now the question is, who's going to pay for it? The cost of digging a trench through 120 miles of desert will be enormous. Said knows Egypt doesn't have that kind of money. And especially as a new leader, he doesn't want to take out hefty loans from foreign banks, risking dangerous levels of debt. But Delesip says, I have an idea. It's along the lines of what today we'd call a public-private partnership. What if, he tells Mohammed Said, what if I form a corporation? Call it the Suez Canal Company. We can distribute the risk in this project by asking investors, regular people around the world, to buy shares in the company. That money will fund the canal. And Delesip says he'll take charge of this whole project. And in, in return for doing all of those things, the company would enjoy a very large share of the profits on the canal for the period of a 99-year lease. And we are talking enormous profits. Delesseps predicts the canal will earn 30 million francs a year, or as much as 300 million in today's dollars. The company doesn't get all of it. Egypt and the shareholders would make money too. And Said says, sounds good. He strikes a deal with Delesseps to create the Suez Canal Company. Next... Delesseps has to actually do what he promised. He has to find thousands of investors willing to give him their money. And so he set out on the sales tour in the autumn of 1858 to give all of these speeches and drum up the promise of this notion that large numbers of ordinary people would buy small shares. And ultimately, things did not play out that way. In his home country of France, people say, sounds great, but also sounds very expensive. Even a small share in the Suez Canal Company costs about as much as a French person's average annual income. Delesseps goes to Austria, Constantinople, Russia. He also goes to an unlikely place, Great Britain. The same Great Britain that has vehemently opposed the canal since day one. But it's a financial hub flush with money and full of potential investors. So the tireless Frenchman goes there. He finds some interest among the British public, but the government greets him with scorn. The prime minister denounces the project. British newspapers call it flagrant robbery. One naysayer gets up in parliament to denounce Delesseps' very character. 
that Nasser eventually offers an apology, thus narrowly averting a duel. But the keenest blow of all comes from a group of British engineers. Who conducted their own studies and concluded that the canal would not be a viable project. All this means that by the end of his tour, about 176,000 shares remain unsold. Yeah, it's a lot. So it's about 45% of the shares. This marketing scheme came up short. Deleseps is stuck. Construction can't begin until he has sold all of the shares. So he has two choices. Abandon the project or appeal to his old friend Mohammed Saeed, now Pasha of Egypt, for help. And here again, his relationship with Saeed Pasha became consequential. Basically, Lesseps returns to Egypt and says, I need you, Saeed Pasha, to buy 176,000 shares in the canal company. By some accounts, Saeed and Lesseps argue over this for days. Buying those shares would require Egypt to take out massive loans from foreign banks, take on a staggering load of debt. This is exactly the scenario that the Egyptian government was trying to avoid when they opted for this arrangement. But Saeed Pasha also really wants the canal built. It's a matter of both personal and national prestige. And in the end, he decides to bail Delesips out. He agrees to take the plunge and commit the funds for the Great Canal. On April 25th, 1859, near the shores of Lake Manzala, Ferdinand Delesips plunges his pickaxe into the ground. Then he turns to those assembled laborers. What lies ahead is years of backbreaking work. And Delesseps isn't going to be the one to do it. He tells those men, Honor to the immortal Mohammed Saeed Pasha. Long may he live. There's a dark side to the agreement between Delesseps and Saeed. Saeed has promised to bolster the project's workforce by pressing tens of thousands of his citizens into forced labor. In Egypt, this system is known as corvée. So the idea was basically the Egyptian government would be effectively subsidizing the excavation by providing very cheap labor, forcing Egyptian peasants to labor on projects of the government's choosing. This kind of forced labor wasn't new to Egypt. It built the pyramids. Countries throughout history and across the world had used it too. But at this time and in this place, it carries specific political repercussions. Egypt is a province of the Ottoman Empire, and the Ottoman Empire had banned the use of corvée. This is a time when many anti-slavery movements are taking shape. Said and Delesseps know this, but they go ahead anyway forcing tens of thousands of people to work by hand in the desert sun, attacking the earth with picks and shovels. At the peak of the use of this institution of the corvée, there were 20,000 people getting kind of summoned and sent out to the canal zone, 20,000 working there, and 20,000 more getting sent home on a rotating basis. At night, many workers sleep on the ground with little or no cover. And desert nights can be cold. At times, they're paid for a day's work with just a loaf of bread. Some workers are given notes that promise them scant wages, but many of those promises are broken in the end. 
More than 100,000 Egyptian workers will die building the canal, making it one of the deadliest construction projects in history. Yet the work proceeds uninterrupted. Until 1863, when another shock arrives. An important figure dies. And it seems that the canal will die with him. On May 9th, History This Week embarks on a three-part miniseries, tracing the aftermath of the Civil War. It's the second founding. Some call it even the second American Revolution. The idea was to reconstruct the Union, but on the basis of freedom. On Reconstruction, we'll take you from sweltering military prisons to the dusty Senate cloakroom, stops on the road toward rebuilding a broken country. Starting with the first of many hard and even dangerous questions arising from the war. What should be done with Confederate rebels? What does it say if the greatest act of treason in American history can't be branded as such? What part of execute is off the table on this? Will Confederate President Jefferson Davis beat charges of treason? And why would Andrew Johnson, an ally of Abraham Lincoln, turn his back on the goal of Reconstruction, justice for all? You said things that make your skin crawl. It's like, why did we fight for four years if slavery is going to come back in another guise? How will civil rights activists wrestle with the fallout from the Civil War, a hundred years after it was supposed to have ended? The first Reconstruction came to an end, but the battle for civil rights never stopped. Will the second Johnson in the White House, Lyndon B. Johnson, do better than the first? What they say to him is, don't make a pitch for civil rights. Johnson says to them, well, what the hell is the presidency for then? Listen to Reconstruction in the History This Week feed starting May 9th. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In 1863, the ruler of Egypt, Mohammed Said, dies in his bed at the age of 40. He is succeeded by his 32-year-old nephew, Ismail. He was extremely ambitious and quite ruthless in a whole variety of ways, but also, by many accounts, a much more shrewd businessman. This spells trouble for the canal. Because Ismail has long believed that Ferdinand de Lesseps had gotten the better of the agreement, that Ismail's uncle 
had basically been duped or pressured or swayed into accepting a pretty lousy deal for Egypt. Ismail takes a fresh look at the Suez Canal Agreement and decides that it needs to be redrawn. Because the canal might involve future profits for Egypt, but Ismail is more concerned with present profits. He sees a huge and immediate business opportunity for his country, an opportunity that has resulted from a disruption on the other side of the world. It's 1863, and the American Civil War is raging. Why was this important to the story of the Suez Canal? When the Union Navy began to blockade Confederate ports at the beginning of the Civil War, the American South, which until that point was the single largest supplier of raw cotton in the world, was basically cut off from the world market that could be purchasing that cotton. The American South can't get its supply of cotton on the world market, but the demand persists, which means that cotton prices are rising. And who else grows cotton? Egypt. Egypt grows lots of cotton. So Ismail knows that if he can seize the moment and get more cotton to market, there's a lot of money to be made. But to do that, he'll need laborers, which means that he was even less inclined to be devoting the labor force conscripted through the corvée to work on this foreign company's canal project. Ismail takes control of the canal's corvée. Many of the workers now spend long days producing cotton on farms. De Lesseps demands compensation for the loss. There's a long, heated arbitration, and the result is bad for Ismail. He has to cough up 38 million francs, several hundred million dollars in today's value. To pay up, he's forced to take out even more foreign loans. It's fine, he thinks. With the profits I'm making from the cotton boom, which shows no signs of ending, I've got it covered. Aaron Jakes says the payout to Delesseps comes around the time the Frenchman realizes that he doesn't need the corvée anyway. And the reason for this is easily explained through an analogy with enjoyable experiences at the beach. So if you dig a hole near the water at the beach, initially you're just digging sand, even if it's wet sand, out of the ground. And you can make good progress for a while. But eventually you will hit the water line. As you continue to dig, water will fill into the hole. The sides of the hole will start to fall in. When that happens as you're digging a giant canal, you no longer need men with shovels. You need heavy machinery to clear the mud fast enough and stay ahead of the water. Delesips buys what's needed and gets the job done. On August 15, 1869, a little over 10 years after construction began, waters from the two seas, the Mediterranean and the Red Sea, mingle for the first time. Even at this moment, many think that the canal is a myth. But Delesseps and Ismail are about to show the whole world it's real by hosting an over-the-top opening ceremony. They start planning for fireworks and banquets and camels in procession. And now it's November, the day before the grand opening. Everything is in place. 
there will be no more hiccups. Except... It wasn't as deep as it should have been, so the bottoms of ships could sometimes hit ground. The night before the ceremony, a ship gets stuck in the canal. Deleseps turns to Ismail and asks how they should deal with this. Ismail takes a minute to consider. And then he says, blow it up. For once, the two men agree on something. Although, in the end, the ship is removed without resorting to dynamite. The next day, 6,000 spectators from Egypt and around the world show up at Port Said. It's a city named for the now-dead Pasha. It's gone from uninhabited to a bustling port city since Deleseps struck the first ceremonial blow 10 years ago. At the celebration, royalty abounds. Everyone from the Empress Eugenie of France to the Austro-Hungarian Emperor to the Crown Prince of Prussia comes to see the canal. They sail at the head of a 78-ship parade. Ebrahim al-Hudaybi told us that despite the enormous price tag, Ismail believed it was worth it. It's the changing moment in world history. It's the triumph of man over nature. It's the opening of a new era. And it's the beginning of a new era for Ferdinand de Lesseps. The opening of the Suez Canal, which he had first imagined more than 30 years earlier, has made him famous. De Lesseps becomes probably one of the most recognizable faces and names of the world globally for long decades after that. But the initial fanfare eventually fades. And there are some problems. The Suez Canal serves fewer ships and earns less money than de Lesseps and Ismail had expected. The strong winds hamper some sailing ships. The canal is more suited to steamships, which have only recently started arriving on the scene. But it takes a lot of money to build steamships. And one country in particular has that kind of money. Britain was the global epicenter of world financial markets. So the city of London was a place where very large pools of capital were constantly being formed and sloshing around. They've also had an industrial revolution, and they're now great at building big things made of iron and steel. Aaron Jakes quotes a saying from the time that describes the irony of Britain benefiting so handsomely from a project it once tried to kill. The canal has been cut by French energy and Egyptian money for British advantage. Meanwhile, in Egypt, the cotton boom has long since ended. All that debt is coming due, and Ismail must find a way to pay it. He tries squeezing every possible penny by raising taxes and selling off government assets. What we might now describe as a kind of fire sale. But it's not enough. Ismail is forced to take a desperate measure. And the most dramatic of these sales was the purchase for the British government of the Egyptian government's shares in the Suez Canal Company, which meant that from 1875 onwards, the British Treasury was the single largest shareholder in the Suez Canal. Now the irony is doubled. Britain has gone from despising the canal to owning almost half the company. And to their benefit, the canal is soon widened and deepened, allowing more ships to use it. In the canal's first decade, the amount of goods passing through skyrockets by 700%. More than 3 million tons of goods will pass through every year. Profits soar. 
profits that Great Britain gets a big share of. But despite Ismail's fire sale, Egypt's debt crisis only deepens. And in 1876, finally the thing that they had been trying to avoid happened. Egypt defaults on their debts. Government jobs and paychecks are cut, and civil unrest follows. Egyptian activists say their government has made the country beholden to foreign banks and that the people are paying for Ismail's mistakes. Great Britain watches nervously. They want Egypt to keep paying back their debts. And then eventually the British found a pretext to invade the country and basically quash that uprising. Beginning in 1882, Egypt becomes a de facto protectorate of Great Britain. The Egyptian government is pretty much controlled by British officials. British troops roam the cities. And then in 1909, the Suez Canal Company tries to extend its lease on the canal long before it expires. But it runs into Egypt's nationalist movement, which has arisen in opposition to the country's colonial occupation. The nationalists loudly oppose the renewal. And the nationalist movement that organized this campaign actually won that fight. But Great Britain still owns a majority of shares in the canal and has the right to operate it for the next 50 years. Although, that's not how things will turn out. In 1922, Egypt gains its political independence. And in 1956, Egyptian President Gamel Abdel Nasser nationalizes the Suez Canal Company, taking ownership away from its European stakeholders. Ebrahim al-Hudaybi told us that through this struggle for independence, the canal became a potent symbol for Egyptians. It was more than just a part of their land. It was now a part of their identity. It is through this project in port that the nation emerges because there is this sense of like collective identity, collective experience, but also collective ownership of the canal. We dug the canal collectively. The labor force came from all over Egypt. So yes, it's, it's servitude. Yes, it's humiliation to a certain extent, but also it is the togetherness of the Egyptian people that emerges from and through the construction of the canal. In the midst of nationalizing the canal, some Egyptians even call for a statue memorializing the workers. They say, If there will be a statue welcoming the travelers through the canal, it will be the statue of the Egyptian peasant and not of Ferdinand de Lesseps. Not of Ferdinand de Lesseps. Since 1899, a 35-foot-tall bronze statue of de Lesseps had stood at the northern entrance of the canal, his right hand outstretched, welcoming the ships. But in 1956... Protesters attacked the statue of de Lesseps, and the statue was exploded and fell into the waters of the canal they had severed from its body. The French government lobbies Egypt to reinstall the statue at the mouth of the canal, but... The inhabitants of Port Said insisted that this is not going to happen. And the protesters get their wish. Today, where his statue originally stood, there sits instead an empty concrete pedestal. Maybe one day it will support a bronze statue of an Egyptian worker, a laborer of the corvée holding a pickaxe.
Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek@history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-351-0410. We are reading and listening, and we really love hearing from you, so please reach out. Thank you to our guests, Ibrahim el Hudebi and Professor Aaron Jakes for speaking with us for this episode. Thank you also to Dr. Bella Galil for talking with us. This episode was produced by Julie Magruder, sound designed by Dan Rosato, and story edited by Jim O'Grady. History This Week is also produced by Ben Dickstein, Julia Press, and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are McKamey Lynn and Jesse Katz. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.